The Fourth Wall, Episode 8, Catherine Hardwick. You're listening to The Fourth Wall, a podcast that takes you beyond the screen or the page and brings you into our conversations with the creative people behind your favorite movies, TV shows, comics, and more. My name is Katie Burt. I'm a staff editor here at Den of Geek. Today, we're talking to Catherine Hardwick, the director of movies like Miss Bala, Twilight, and 13. We talked to Catherine about her long career as a woman director in Hollywood, how her experiences growing up in Texas along the U.S.-Mexico border affected her portrayal of the region in Miss Bala, and what she's working on next. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you for talking to me. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, so my first question is about the depiction of Mexico and the United States and the border region in general in this movie, because it feels so much more nuanced and complex and equal than what we usually see in movies centered around violence <laughs> along the border. So yeah, I just really want to hear you talk about how you wanted to depict these two regions, especially in relation to one another. That is such an interesting question. I love it. Okay, you may or may not know that I grew up on the Mexican border of Texas. So, and literally the, our farm is right on the Rio Grande River. You jump out the balcony of the farmhouse. I would swim across as a kid and then go and do illegal entry to a foreign country into Mexico (laughs) and run around in the fields and stuff. So I have a special relationship that most people do not have. I grew up loving the culture because it is such an artistic culture and you know I studied art in San Miguel de Allende for one summer Mm. traveled to almost every state Mexico studying art architecture there you know so for me it's a very rich beautiful tradition with fascinating you know music uh, everything so when I had the opportunity to direct this movie I'm like cool I want to show all those cultural aspects of Mexico the best I can within this, you know, uh, story. So I ha- as you can see, there's some really cool modern architecture in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you really got a sense of the vibrancy, I think, of, of the world, of the setting. Yes, yes like that, that cultural center mm. where they do the beauty contest. I mean, that is like a super classic building with the same architect that did the Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City did that. And so that's like a great building. And then, how about those buildings out in the desert, you know, mm. where you see the super modern thing? That's a Tijuana architect, cutting-edge architect. There's, like, Tesla charging channels at that hotel. People don't think of that, you know, when you yeah. a border town. But it's vibrant. I mean, there's music, there's art, there's cool graffiti, there's food trucks, there's cutting-edge cuisine, you know. So I wanted you to feel like there's this awesome culture there and feel it as much as I could, you know, help that permeate the film. And a very vibrant, you know, artist and everybody lived there. So that was one of my goals. I'm yeah, noticed I think it definitely came through. It felt really unique to this movie in a refreshing way. <laughs> and yeah, obviously, and you yeah. also see the border wall in the movie. Mm. I don't know if you saw it, but in the background of a lot of scenes is the actual border wall. Like when you're near the, the police is driving her along when he kind of she gets in with a cop car yeah literally driving by the border wall and then by the bull ring is the wall that goes into the ocean so yeah 
Anyway. Yeah. I know. I feel like we could just talk about this the whole time. But so you obviously adapted Miss Bala from a Spanish language film, and there's still a lot of Spanish spoken in this adaptation. And I'm curious about where those decisions came from about how much Spanish versus English, because it informs so much about the characters. Like, you know, so much about based on when they, and if they choose to speak Spanish or English, but also knowing that this is being rela- released to a probably primarily English speaking only audience. Like how does that factor in if it does, or is it totally based on story for you? I don't know. That was so interesting because when I was working in Tijuana, and of course, every time I would start in my pocha Spanish, kind of broken Spanish. And I, I'm not terrible in Spanish, but people could tell that I wasn't great. So almost yeah. everybody in Tijuana, you know, people that deal with tourists and, and any kind of commerce, they all are fluent in English and Spanish. So the second they would hear my Spanish, they would just switch to English. Okay. Because mm, yeah. it was easier and they knew it was just faster to communicate. So I realized that if you're communicate, anyone mostly in these border towns, if they're fluent in both languages, the second they hear, you know, the, <laughs> the stumbling Spanish, they just go to English. Yeah. They're like, my English is better than your Spanish. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, way better. Yeah. So that's what you see the characters doing that in the film. And Gina is supposed to be somebody that is not fluent mm. in Spanish. Her character is, and even Ismael's character isn't that fluent, but Gina isn't fluent at all. That's intentional. And that she is straddling this identity sort of crisis that many Latinx people have. They grew up in the States. They look Latinx, but mm-hmm. they don't, they're not fluent. So they get criticized when they go to Mexico and even they're criticizing their own country. Yeah. You know, like, and so that was kind of interesting. So every time that she would start talking, you would see the people around her revert to English. But then when they're just talking among themselves in Lino's gang, they would just speak Spanish. So that's kind of how we had to do it. And even the little boy was very fluent in both languages. Most kids, you know, smart kids are mm. in border towns. But he started talking to her in Spanish and then... Then the sister goes, no, practice your English. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I loved all those little details. It was kind of fun, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Gina, you seem to have a talent for casting. You've worked with so many wonderful actors at the beginning of their careers. And obviously Gina isn't as young as Evan Rachel Wood or Nikki Reed or Kristen Stewart were when you worked with them, but she does feel like someone who has a long career ahead of her. So I'm really curious, when you're casting a main role like this or in other films you've done, what kinds of qualities beyond maybe like obviously being great actors do you look for in a person who's going to be like a chief collaborator in telling a story? Well, Gina is really unique because she, A, has a ton of energy and mm. passion and enthusiasm for every detail. And she's also just an optimist in a way. <laughs> like if I ever would have one moment of being like, oh my God, you know, we didn't have enough money to do this. Or, you know, what if I would be like complaining for one minute, or it's too, it's going to rain today or something (laughs) bad happened. She'd be like, you know, no wallowing in any kind of pit or anything. It's like, you can do this. You can figure this out. Your whole career you've been, you know, you've learned to do this, solve these problems. I'd be like, oh, okay. (laughs) You know, let's just, you know, back up and woman up and go. Yeah. So that was really great because she's just like, no nonsense. Let's get this done. We can do this. And I love that. It's just super positive and just 
a ton of energy. Let me do my own stunts. I want to run across that crazy huge parking lot myself <laughs> and really feel it. And she's got the energy to do it, you know. And she puts everything, on, you know, onto the screen. When I met her, I could just see her intensity, her vulnerability, but also like her likability in a way. Like, yeah. you want to go on this journey with her. You just want to be her best friend. You want to go on this trip with her. And what is she going to do? Would I be able to survive this? I mean, she's not trained as a Navy SEAL or anything, but she's figuring out how to get out of these crazy escalating circumstances. Yeah, and every role I've seen her, and she really just pulls you in. It's such a a rare quality, I think. So I definitely enjoyed watching her in this movie. And so we're starting to have some more mainstream discussions specifically about who reviews films and how that impacts the critical consensus around a film. So, you know, most films are still mainly reviewed by white male critics. And I'm curious in the context of this movie and also other movies you've done, is that something you think about or what kind of impact do you think it has on a movie like Miss Bala? I do think it has an impact. Um, you know, for example, in this case, it was inspired by the earlier film, mm-hmm. but a young Mexican writer rewrote it. And then when Gina and I came on, of course, we didn't want to follow the pattern of the other film, which the lead character was extremely passive. Everything happens to her. She never fights back, even a rape and everything. And then certain critics, you know, seem to have kind of revered that film <laughs> more mm-hmm. than ours. Because she is extremely passive in the film. Yeah. And, I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons. And so we made something nine years later where a woman isn't passive and is trying to use any skills, any strategy she can to figure out how to save her friend and get out of there. And she has a dignity and a presence in some ways, prevents her and helps her to uh, navigate, not get raped and all kinds of things. So, yeah. You know, some people were like, oh, the other film was so great. Yeah, you see a passive woman, mm. all this bad stuff happens here. She never does anything. Of course you like it better. <laughs> you know, male critic, which I think is kind of outrageous, but yeah. interesting. You know? Yeah. It's fascinating, yeah. I agree. <laughs> so you testified as part of the ACLU and Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's investigation into gender bias in the entertainment industry. And I'm curious, you know, that was a few years ago. I don't know if you've been part of the process since, but I'm curious if going through that process affected your own perspective on your career so far, just like having to oh, like yeah. think back. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as everybody has look back as the Me Too movement and everything has happened since then, Mm. uh, which actually that started after we started working on, I mean, all the Weinstein stuff happened after the follow started. So, you know, you realize you do go back over your career. Wow, that thing, that situation, because often as everybody's spoken eloquently, more eloquently, you feel alone, like this Mm. happened to me. I was inadequate. I wasn't good enough. I didn't figure out how to avoid this. I didn't figure out how to make the next chess move to advance you know, yeah. to the next position in a better way. And then you start reading, you know, obviously awesome books like Lean In, mm. where you see systemic patterns and you really look at the statistics and go, holy shit, you know, yeah. it wasn't just me, yeah. you know. But I think, you know, on the positive side, 
the fact that there has been this incredible light shined on it by like incredible journalists like you and everybody they're asking you know harder questions and and we are seeing a change i mean the fact that this baller got made by a studio is fantastic yeah uh, latina lead you know action directed by a woman that was a priority for them mm-hmm. you know usually that wouldn't be a priority you know to find a woman and of course there's still a ton of great female stories that are still directed by men, but <laughs> but at least some people have their consciousness raised enough to say, maybe we should try to find a female director for mm-hmm. that. And at least they'll have, you know, there's the percentages. I think it's moving in the right direction, you know. Yeah. So that's exciting. People feel a bit guilty if they don't hire mm. more women. You know, the TV world has changed. I mean, I got called to do, you know, I directed an episode, I'm doing another one of This Is Us, Mm. just directed a pilot, you know, for the CW, and I think that they feel a sense of responsibility to have more different voices out there and have more women directors, and they make more of an effort than people used to make. So that's good. Yeah, Yeah. that is good. Um, I actually interviewed Rachel Talalay a few months ago. And in the process of that, of writing up that interview, found out that you worked with her on Tank Girl. And I just, I don't know, it was interesting. And I just saw her. Oh, really? I saw her a month ago in Vancouver. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm curious what you remember from working on that film. And also just, I don't know, any insights that you have had or talked with Rachel about in terms of you know, she's spent maybe a bit more time in the television world. You've stayed on this like feature film side, although both crossing over to a certain extent. But obviously, both of your careers have been like very affected by the opportunities that women get versus men in terms of directing ap- opportunities. <laughs> well, I love Rachel. I mean, she's just super creative and fun and you know, doing a movie probably way ahead of its time, Tank mm. Girl, you know, taking a graphic novel with a female, you know, spunky, outrageous, irreverent, super, you know, as the lead. I mean, that just kind of probably blew people's minds yeah. right, right off the bat, you know. It would blow and some people's people mind now, and, so, minds now, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she's so crazy, and she has a sex scene with a half-man, half-kangaroo. I mean, come <laughs> on. You know, it's it's out of the norm. So it was really a creative experience. I mean, for me, I got to build tanks with barbecue pits on the top. You know, it was <laughs> so fun, every level. And, you know, she encouraged that creativity and, you know, just out-of-the-box thinking. So I love that. And she's also a skilled producer. I mean, mm. she really knows everything. She's also like a physicist or something. I mean, she's got everything going on. But the fact that, you know, we all talk about director's jail. You go and you have one movie that doesn't get marketed right or doesn't get released on the right day or nobody hears about it or whatever happens or it's released at the wrong time. All those things that directors can't control, then it doesn't make money. And then suddenly, oh, her film didn't make money. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't get to direct her film again for a long time. Whereas we know many guys get <laughs> another chance, another chance, another yeah. chance, even with a, a bigger budget. But it's all competitive for men, women, everybody. People are right now especially just trying to figure out what can work in the marketplace that's not a superhero. And mm-hmm. how do you break through all of these things? And, you know, what's the best format? What's the best way to get your stories told and get them out there? So. I think there's so much change. It's very exciting time right now. Yeah. So much is going on, you know, it's just awesome. You know, there's 
I'm doing something for Quibi, you know, that new format, which is short mm-hmm. bites, quick bites, you know, with Jeffrey Katzenberg's company that we're, di- we're going to tell stories in 10-minute bites, you wow. know, so that's like a new, you know, that you could see on your mobile device or not, and it's an exciting story, and they're encouraging a lot of creative freedom. So it's an amazing time right now, <laughs> you know, with just so many cool opportunities. And But I think Rachel, I mean and myself and many other people, wow, we could have been making stuff for the last 15 years, a million cool things. So we just got to seize the moment now, and so does everybody else, and just go for it now, I guess. Yeah, move forward. (laughs) I did want to ask you about, Um, this one is actually kind of a selfish question, too, because I love the Raven cycle, and I know that you at one point were attached to direct the pilot, and I was curious if that was still, had happened, is happening, if you could talk at all about it. Um, we are still, it's actually up on my wall right now. Oh, cool. It's still moving forward. We're excited. Maggie, the awesome yeah. writer, just turned in a draft. And we're getting studio notes like next week. On oh, it. So cool. Fingers crossed. We love that project. Yeah, I'm definitely yeah. rooting for that one. So I'm excited to see what happens. But thank you so much for talking with me. I've okay. admired your films from the time that, you know, I was a kid watching like 13 and Twilight. So it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Oh, fun. Well, thank you so much. Thank you again to Catherine Hardwick for talking with us today. That'll wrap things up for this episode. Come back in two weeks for the next edition of the podcast, when we'll break through the fourth wall once again to talk to another creator or performer behind the entertainment that you love. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. My name is Katie Burt, and you can follow me at Katie Burt, K-A-Y-T-I-B-U-R-T on Twitter. Find more content at denofgeek.com. And thanks for listening. Join us again next time, Beyond the Fourth Wall. Beyond the Fourth Wall.